Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers.com. Welcome to another podcast at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by the Operating Engineers, Local 139, Madison Teachers Incorporated, Madison Firefighters, Local 311, and Madison Teamsters, Local 695. Joining us now, the Associate Editor of the Capital Times and Correspondent for the Nation, John Nichols. Uh, John Nichols, can we start out with some profits today? Indeed. Okay. You mean, you mean profits uh as regards economic? Or well, profit? these are people that aren't didn't necessarily claim to be prophets, but what they said... Well, let's start out with the passing of Edwin Edwards, former governor of Louisiana, served four terms. I had the honor of going to his inaugural in 19... Let's see, what year was that? 1992. He was elect, re-elected in 1991. Yep. Uh, he... He famously said uh, at that uh, speech at LSU University, his inaugural speech, I must have strengths, else I would not be here. So, (laughs) here is Edwin Edwards, Edwin Washington Edwards, at the Monteleon Hotel in New Orleans, 1991, the the night he defeated David Duke. Tonight, tonight is the first night of our journey to decency and to honesty and to fairness and to justice and to respect and to honor and yes, to hard work. I ask the nation, the national press, I ask all of those whose opinions we respect to write and say of us that Louisiana rejected the demagogue and renounced the irrational fear, the dark suspicion, the evil bigotry and the division and chose a future of hope and trust and love for all of God's children. Prophecy is reserved for those who are given that special gift, which I do not possess. But I say to all of America tonight that there will be other places and other times when there will be other challenges by other David Dukes. They too will be peddling bigotry and division as their elixir of false hope. They too will be riding piggyback on the frustrations of citizens disinfected by government. Those of us in government everywhere... We're going to bring you David Duke's concession speech in its entirety as soon as Edwin Edwards completes his victory speech. We must address the causes for public disenchantment with government at every level. This must be a priority throughout our nation. Tonight, Louisiana defeated the darkness of hate and prejudice 
bigotry and division. But where will the next challenge come from? Will it be another campaign in Louisiana or in a campaign for governor in some other state or a campaign for president of the United States? Who will make the next assault on decency? Tonight, Louisiana won. But if the next merchant of bigotry is free of the apparent vulgar signs of the KKK and the Swastika, well, the people simply reject again as we have done. Or will our nation accept again the stereotype of the welfare queen? Does Willie Horton live on? Or will that symbol of hatred wear a star of David or a Roman collar or speak in a foreign accent? Indeed, who will be next? America, be on guard. Whoa. Kind of nailed it, didn't he? I remember that speech. I covered that campaign. I was down there. And uh, uh, I remember going to David Duke rallies, right? With like 99 and 9 tenths white crowds in places like Baton Rouge and going to Edwin Edwards rallies, which were these remarkable multiracial, multi ethnic, you know, kind of uh, anticipating where a, a lot of our best, the best of our politics would go. It was really. A campaign that that set the tone for uh, much of what would happen afterwards, and it is notable that Edwards came away from it with precisely that perspective: that they had succeeded in Louisiana, but they wouldn't necessarily. That didn't necessarily mean um, that this threat was over. And what was interesting about the Louisiana situation was that Duke was so obvious, so easy in some ways, an opponent, right? And this is a guy who had literally, you know, dressed up as a Klansman and a Nazi, who was a Klansman. Which actually spurred Edwards' uh, best line of the campaign. Uh, he, wizard under the sheets. Yes, yes, I share one thing in common with my opponent. We are both wizards beneath the sheets. <laughs> Great line. Along that line. <laughs> and, and you see, um, I think it's notable that, you know, Edwards made those comments because while he was often you know, sort of faux modest in some things he said. He would say, oh, I'm not the, I don't have the gift of prophecy and stuff like that. It, Edwards knew he was brilliant. Um, he knew that he was one of the, the greatest political tacticians uh, to come along in the 20th century. And that didn't mean he was ethical. He had plenty of legal problems, plenty of personal challenges and stuff like that. But he was an incredibly brilliant political tactician. You know, he didn't and cheat the people, though. No, no, no. He cheated, you know, he cheated the, the businesses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well. river, people that wanted riverboat gambling licenses. So, yeah, and I'm not excusing. I'm not excusing that, right? But yeah. you know, he really was a progressive uh, governor. He was pro. Right. He was pro life, as every governor in Louisiana is. That's yeah. just the reality of Louisiana. But he is really quite a remarkable person. He will he will lay in state at the Capitol, mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, he kind of had a revival in, at the at the oh. end of his life. All right, so... He never, Sly, can we just finish up one, one court thought, though? He never really fell out of favor, even when he went to jail, and he did go to jail for a time. Uh, I, because I, he, again, he was a genius. His The great genius that he had was he figured out how to tax the oil companies and to get huge amounts of money. 
they had previously, the way that they'd gotten money from oil companies was a flat fee, right, you know, for every gallon or whatever they were taking out or barrel. Um, he did it by volume. And so as a result, got massive amounts of additional money in. So he was very, very smart. And I'll just close out this core concept on it. When he was giving that speech, effectively what he was saying was um, he knew he could beat a David Duke. He worried, I think, about whether his party would be savvy enough and sly enough uh, to defeat the future David Dukes. And so I thought it was a very, very pointed, very smart uh, and insightful comment. I wrote to him in prison. He wrote back, hand-typed letter. <laughs> he was a librarian. <laughs> right. He and, helped, a and, lot of, uh, helped a lot of people get their GEDs. Can I just put one, one element there, though? I don't think your, letters, your letter was the most important letter he got in prison. Nope, I don't think so either. <laughs> <laughs> his future wife started writing him. That is, uh, that is correct. All right, so profit number two. Here we go. This is Brian Williams the other night on MSNBC. But he did see it coming. He wrote the following back in 1995. All right, he's talking about Carl Sagan here. And we quote, I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few, and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues, when the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. The dumbing down of America is most evident in the slow decay of substantive content in the enormously influential media. The 30-second sound bites now down to 10 seconds or less. Lowest common denominator programming, credulous presentations on pseudoscience and superstition, but especially a kind of celebration of ignorance. Roll that around for a while. Those were among his final published words. He died 10 months later. Here we are 25 years later realizing just what he was trying to tell us back then. All right. So in the prophecy department, that's pretty close, too. Well, you know what the interesting thing is? Um, You're talking about two people speaking at, you know, it was fair to say roughly around the same time, right? Right. And this was, and what was that time, 1991? Um, we had, you know, gone through the Reagan era, your Bush was president, and then you were coming in, that was Sagan, into the Clinton era. Um, it was a time when uh, you had, and I know this is going to sound odd, because, but it was a time when you had, the Democratic Party was starting to air towards centrism, right? It was going to be this very, much more business-like, technical party, not a populist party. Uh, and that wasn't working. And I think some of these people started to see that. They started to see that there, was, there were a lot of deep, fundamental issues. And Sagan got to the heart of it when he's talking about a country where you, know, you don't have the, the kind of jobs that you used to have. And, um, and I think, yeah, it, it's prophetic to talk about it, but it's also something that that they weren't alone in recognizing that there were a lot of people in that period who said you know i'm not sure this is going to work 
I'm not sure that what we're doing here is the is the right approach. And unfortunately, they were dismissed, largely dismissed by the media, largely dismissed by our political elites as, you know, sort of, uh, you know, like old-fashioned and not innovative, not thinking in the future. And I think it's a very powerful lesson for now, right, that, that as we think about the moment that we are in, um, there are still certain touchstones, certain core values and ideals that we ought to keep in mind. So um, yeah. a lot of blue-collar people, a lot of working-class people, the type of people that uh, might have voted for Robert F. Kennedy mm-hmm. or George Wallace. And uh, in some cases in the same year did both. In the same year did both. When the Democratic Party lost its way on economics, uh, they turned to the dark side. Yeah, they, they, they turned toward Wall Street. <laughs> well, no, no, that, no, no, no. I'm, you, you're talking about oh, the party. Voters. I'm talking about voters. Talking about oh, no, 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 oh, no, no. I'm talking oh, about yeah. voters. I am talking about people that uh, well, they went for desperate. the easy grievance. I think a lot got desperate, you know, and, and, um, and I think one of the – this goes back to Reagan. And, and Reagan and his people uh, were very, very sly, even though, you know, Reagan very – upbeat, kind of a happy guy, you know, all that, you know, happy talk. But they, they recognized that um, they weren't going to do good for the people with government. They acknowledged it. They said government's the problem, right? And so then the, the – but what they had to do to make that work is they had to discredit government. They had to make it seem like government couldn't do any good, right, that the solution wasn't – a political solution. And so the answer was to get government out of the way because you can't count on government to do you any favors. And the Democrats, unfortunately, reinforced that in a lot of ways. Because remember when Clinton came in as president, Clinton kept saying, oh, the era of big government is over. He actually echoed Reagan in a lot of ways. And so that was the perfect scenario for, you know, creating, like, mass frustration because a tremendous number of people started to say, oh, well, the Republicans aren't going to do anything for us, and neither are the Democrats. So then that creates the opening for this politics of grievance, right, this politics of anger at, you know, some group of people, immigrants or somebody else, right, rather than focusing on the fundamental issues. Well, let me ask, let's tie this up in a knot in this segment. If that David Duke-Edwin Edwards election were held today, uh, or would have been held, let's just say, last year when Donald Trump was still president. Uh, as bad as George Herbert Walker Bush was in many ways, and he certainly played with racism to get elected president. Mm-hmm. But he did. He did have a. He did have a line where he where he drew it, and he said, "Not to support David Duke." Yeah. Gee, where do you think Donald Trump might have come down in that Louisiana governor's race, and would a hundred thousand fewer African American votes in the state now than? probably were there in, in 1991 because of Hurricane Katrina. I'm kind of thinking David Duke might have become governor. It's, it's within the realm of possibility. And, and, and one thing to remember, Sly, is that David Duke ran two campaigns. He ran in 1990 for the U.S. Senate. Then he turned around and ran in 1991. Yeah, and he had a respectable showing in both against campaigns. Bennett Johnson, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah in right? both of those campaigns, I mean, he was, he was effectively the the Republican nominee, although there were some Republicans who went against him to their credit. But uh, and and he ran quite well. Now the interesting thing is, in both of those campaigns, he was beaten 
buy in with Bennett Johnson, a, a pretty popular incumbent, and with Edwin Edwards, somebody who was effectively an incumbent because he had been governor before. And so, uh, yeah, I I would say to you without a question that you know what's happened with the Republican Party, um, where the Republican Party has increasingly a accepted an awful lot of racism and xenophobia as a part of its its overall messaging, and B, uh, developed a blind loyalty to, you know, in this case, Donald Trump and, and to some of its leadership. Yeah, I think if, if Trump and others had gotten on board with David Duke, it doesn't guarantee that Duke would have won. I mean, because they, they, you know, over in Alabama, they Doug Jones beat him. You know, so right. it is possible to beat these folks. Well, yeah, right. But right, but and and, it, and Matt Bevin lost in Kentucky, so there, that's there right. are so these cases. Yeah, and even in, and Louisiana to this day has a Democratic governor. So I, I wouldn't say for sure that Duke would have won, but I would, as somebody who covered that race back in '91, so, I I'll tell you, in '91 I was pretty sure Duke was going to get beat. But, you know, you could feel. Yeah, it. this time, this time not so much. Yeah. All right, we got to take a break. John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation at SliceOffice.com. I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SliceOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date. Whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SliceOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. We're back at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by Madison Computer Works and Jeff's Guitar Clinic. All right, uh, let's talk about the New York mayor's race, John Nichols from the Capital Times. Uh, Eric Adams won. He is an appealing candidate. He ran a very good race, and I take nothing away from him. But it is interesting, uh, the national narrative on his victory. Let me just play a clip here. I was going to find the right clip. I believe this is Eric Adams actually speaking after he won. Here, hang on. I am the face of the new Democratic Party. Look at me. And you're seeing the future of the Democratic Party. If the Democratic Party fails to recognize what we did here in New York, they're going to have a problem in the midterm elections, and they're going to have a problem in the presidential elections. The Wall Street Journal, uh, the folks on Morning Joe, they're all over this. It's like, see... This is because of that defund the police stuff. He won. People rejected that. And, of course, I'd, I have not seen a lot of people using that slogan anymore. But, boy, the, you know, it's funny. The Wall Street Journal talking about crime is funny because their economic policies are probably responsible for, I would say, the majority of the crime in America. Certainly the corporate crime. Well, no, I'm talking about <laughs> yeah, I'm just, po- just crime, is, cri- crime happens because of poverty. And I, I share your who has created who has created a crueler version of capitalism or supported it than the Wall Street Journal. That said, um, I find this whole interesting narrative because about three hundred some miles away on the other state of New York, uh, we have an entirely we have an entirely different outcome. 
<laughs> we have a we have a mayor who's going to be elected in Buffalo, unless the incumbent mayor somehow launches this write-in campaign funded by Carl Palladino. Um, we have a a socialist mayor in Buffalo. Here's a clip uh, of her. Joining me now is India Walton. Uh, Ms. Walton, thank you so much for your time. First of all, congratulations to you on this uh, historic uh, victory. Your opponent will be the first incumbent Buffalo mayor to lose since 1961. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo had this to say on Brown earlier. His campaign strategy, as I understand it, was basically uh, to uh, avoid engaging in a campaign. And then you had a very low turnout. We know that combination. We've seen that before. That doesn't work. I want to get your thoughts on why you won. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to speculate about it, as we just heard there from the governor giving us the, his, his political analysis. But what do you believe are the reasons for your victory? I believe we won because we organized. We have a message of care, love, and hope that is resonant with working class Buffalo, um, we organized and we won. As I noted, uh, you would be the country's first socialist mayor in more than 60 years. People like Governor Cuomo, again, have uh, called your win an anomaly. I, I want to hear from you what you think this means for the broader movement in the country and progressives generally. What does it mean for leftist politics nationally? And obviously you're aware of how uh, those on the right use the term socialism to hammer uh, the Democratic Party generally. And wh what do you make of that, broadly speaking? The pandemic has proven that we can have social programs that prioritize people and working class families, and we can make efforts to reduce childhood poverty, and it works. Um, no one is returning their stimulus. We all enjoyed free health care and immunizations. Um, that, that is socialism. That is our government stepping up to take care of its people. And that is what we should expect as Americans, as New Yorkers, and as Buffalonians. All right, there you go. All right, sort this out for us, Comrade Nichols. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I interviewed uh, India Walton the other day. Uh, I'll bet you did. With her. And um, she's a really, really capable uh, politician, although she, this is her first race. But she, she's got a, a, a good sense of it. And so I've covered Eric Adams over the years, and so, so does Eric Adams. And so one thing that I think you have to put in the mix is that political skills actually matter. And it's one of the, the mistakes a lot of people make when they, they cover politics. They try to look for, you know, some overarching issue that defines things. And they lose sight of, you know, the basic political skills of, of the candidate and the people around him. In this case, uh, Eric Adams and India Walton both very, very capable candidates. It's kind of like John Bell Edwards and Andy Bashir. It, 100%. Um, or, and we can find a lot of other examples of it around the country. And so that needs to be put in the mix. But there's something else here that, that ought not to be underestimated. And that is that each of these candidates spoke to uh, constituencies that have been neglected in kind of the boom times of, of cities. And in Buffalo, especially, the example is Buffalo's downtown is looking better and better. Right, they're really focusing on that downtown and 
buildings going up and condos and there's gentrification and the whole thing. And India Walton said, you know, as a housing activist uh, with a remarkable personal story, 38-year-old woman who uh, was a single mom and, you know, really had a lot of struggles early in her life and was very open about that, um, she said, we've got to think about the whole city. We have to think about those neighborhoods that aren't downtown, those neighborhoods that are uh, still struggling with a lot of housing issues, a lot of housing costs. Eric Adams did much the same thing in New York City. He focused his campaign on Brooklyn and Queens, which are you know these vast boroughs of the city uh, with with you know just massive tracts of of what look like you know not suburban houses, but they have you know very different than sort of the Manhattan image. And in in Adams's case, he talked about. Uh, making sure that people are safe, making sure that people are prosperous, uh, and frankly, remembering those people in those neighborhoods. Uh, it, Andy Walton talked about a lot of the same things. You know, and I, so I can't that. believe that Andrew Cuomo couldn't have been gracious and said, I congratulate her, and I look forward to working with her to help Buffalo. Well, you see, Andrew Cuomo, <laughs> the interesting thing was, he was a big, big ally of the guy that got beat. Well, it sounds and, like the ally that could be was, you know, lazy. Wasn't he? Didn't he? Didn't run for re-election? No, he, he <laughs> presumed that because his opponent was a thirty-eight-year-old woman who had never run for office before, that you know he was just going to sweep through. The, did he? Did he not see what Cory Bush did in St. Louis? Well, but Cory Bush did it. You know, she ran two campaigns, right? She lost the first time, came back, um, and and I would say that that. The India Walton campaign was underestimated by a lot of people. But let me throw something else into this mix, which I think you'll appreciate especially. The key union, or one of the key unions in Buffalo, is the teachers' union. And they became very frustrated with Cuomo and with the incumbent mayor, and they backed India Walton. So did a number of other unions. Um, the, some of the key unions in New York City, um, 32BJ, the uh, uh, Service Employees Union, uh, a lot of the city employees' unions, uh, these are huge unions, they backed Adams. And uh, I think one of the things that, that is deeply underestimated in how uh, politics is covered is the role that in a state like New York, where unions are still very strong, where union, what union endorsements and activist union endorsements mean. And I will tell you this right now, Eric Adams would not have been elected mayor of New York had it not been for the union endorsements that he had, period. Say that flat out without a question. And I think there's a pretty good chance up in Buffalo that India Walton uh, might not have made it without the, the very strong later in the game uh, endorsement of the, the teachers union up there. It is interesting, though. Buffalo is certainly not as liberal as New York City. No. And uh, if you were to just look at it from 30,000 feet, it would appear as though... New York notched a little bit, little bit to the right, mm -hmm. and Buffalo moved to the left. It's a, it's a very interesting dichotomy. It is, but there's also another part of it, and um, and this is something again when we talk about police reform that a lot of people miss. Eric Adams in New York definitely talked about you know funding the police. He was not a defund the police guy. There's no question of that, and yet. He talked a lot about reforming the police. He had actually been a police officer and had been very active in a lot of 
critique of the police for their treatment of black men and for black people on the streets of New York. He's been beaten by the police. Exactly. <laughs> and so I want that, I want to, you see, so you understand that there's subtlety in this. Of course there there's is. There's more to it. India Walton, up in Buffalo, obviously a very strong supporter of reforming the police. Uh, and yet, somebody who had a very nuanced view on it, where she talked about the need to, you know, have policing, but to also have social services. Well, and of course, the the Buffalo police, what happened? Horrible. It, just unbelievable. Indefensible. Indefensible, stuff. yeah. And so, as a result, I, I think that, again, the thing to understand here is that you've got, you know, when people come in, at, as you suggest, 30,000 feet, they're like, oh, wow, here's a clear signal from here, and here's a clear signal from there. And frankly, both India Walton and Eric Adams, like, you know, they're, they're good politicians. They want to say, yep, I am a, I'm a signal, you know, in that, and they speak to that. But the, the reality is that on the ground, you had much more nuanced, much more subtle campaigns that, that sent a, a variety of signals. And so the big deal is these are both going to be really interesting cities to cover. Well, um, and I want to say Buffalo especially. Because if India Walton pulls off what she's talking about with housing affordability, um, she might well become a national model. I also think it's interesting that here we have a, you know, of course in Buffalo it was two African-Americans running against each other. And New York had elected an African-American mayor uh, many years ago. Uh, you know, the, the race, race really was not a pivotal role in these things, so we're not really talking about identity politics here. There's other things that are sort of shaping this. One more thing before we go today. I want to talk to you about uh, Nate Silver's analysis of ranked choice voting. Here it is. I'm here in Las Vegas, but I've been keeping an eye on my hometown of New York, and I think there are three big takeaways from the city going all in on ranked choice voting. Lesson number one, there are still a few kinks to work out. About 15% of ballots in the Democratic mayoral primary were exhausted, meaning that they ranked neither Eric Adams nor Catherine Garcia the top two finishers. If you were one of those people, remember to use all five of your slots next time. Lesson number two, RCV can up the odds for moderate candidates. Of course, this is a Democratic primary in New York City, so all of the candidates are pretty progressive. But if you had to rank them, Maya Wiley was the most liberal of the bunch, Adams was the most conservative, and Garcia was somewhere in between, kind of a compromise choice. And while Garcia didn't win, RCB launched her from third place, 11 points behind Adams in the first round of voting, and also behind Wiley, to just one point behind him in the final round before her luck ran out. Lesson number three, it's smart to make a deal. When Andrew Yang was eliminated in fourth place, 32% of his votes went to Garcia, the candidate he'd endorsed as his number two choice and campaigned with in the closing days of the election. Compare that to 28% of Yang votes going for Adams and just 11% for Wiley. That helped leapfrog Garcia into second place. If their alliance had been announced a little sooner, well, who knows? In the end, Adams won anyway, as the initial frontrunner does 97% of the time under ranked choice voting. But it was a photo finish. I buy that it worked out well enough, but I'd like to see a few more elections under RCV before I double down. All right. Your thought of that analysis? Good analysis. I think he, I think he nailed it. Um, and I... I I've written a lot about RCV over the last 20 years um, and wrote a lot about it in New York City. Uh, and I think that, you know, first time you're rolling out an RCV system, there's always, you know, grumbling and, and people who see flaws and strengths in it. Uh, 
once it gets into play, people start to understand how it works, and things like those alliances uh, become more meaningful. Um, but here's the interesting thing. In the RCD stuff, ranked choice voting, we're talking all the time about the mayor's race. Uh, if you look down the ballot, you see where uh, it really had a profound impact. Brad Lander, who got uh, nominated for city comptroller, is one of the most visionary progressives uh, in the country, uh, literally an, an incredible figure. He's a city council member, um, led the group Local Progress nationally, uh, knows you know basically every progressive local elected official in the country. Uh, and Lander got nominated, even though he wasn't the front runner by any means, wasn't the best known, but he pulled together a campaign that made him a lot of people's second choice. And so the ranked choice voting really worked for him very, very well. Also, in a number of city council races, you saw uh, real breakthrough wins against uh, powerful incumbents, uh, where, again, the ranked choice voting worked. So the bottom line is that if you want to have a, do a whole show, do a week of shows on it, um, I can show you a lot of the subtleties of it. But I'll, I'll agree with Silver's basic analysis there, and that is there's kinks. Uh, they, it wasn't rolled out well in some ways. The New York Times did a ridiculous thing where instead of offering rankings, they just endorsed one candidate. Um, and so there's a lot of challenges and things to go forward. And yet, I will argue that the system worked pretty well and that at the end of the day, uh, it does open up the process. It's one of a number of voting reforms that people ought to consider. It, in Canada, it's been debated for a long time. Obviously, Forever. the NDP would love it, and uh, the Conservative Party would become extinct. <laughs> it would be the end of them. Uh, as it is, they're not doing very well, but well, that's for another day. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation, thanks for coming to Sly's office. Pleasure, brother. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. <laughs>